Thank you, uh, Franklin, for reading the the passage for us this morning. So, uh, so yes, we are in um, uh, we are in uh, the um, the uh, the book of Luke and chapter thirteen. And uh, before I do that, uh, before I get into the message uh, this morning, I just wanted to just um, you know uh, just go back to uh, you know what uh, I know a lot of you attended the baptism yesterday and it was uh, indeed a, a wonderful occasion and uh, you know i've been to many many baptisms and uh, you know every time every time that i'm at a baptism uh, you know i, I uh, and i've been to especially when i go to baptisms in other parts of india so i've been to baptisms in rural parts of karnataka and north india and other places and it's always you know, I, I always, um, uh, sometimes I think about why, why does the Lord, uh, you know, uh, have, why did he institute these various, um, I mean, you can call them rituals, you can call them ceremonies, you can call them ordinances, whatever word you want to use, right? We come every week to remember the Lord, uh, you know, we baptize people, uh, you know, when they, when they, you know, in obedience to the command of the Lord and, uh, you know, and this serves such a such a great purpose. Of course, it's important for the folks who are getting baptized. But you know, I believe it's it's even more important for us. And um, you know, it's always a, a very emotional thing for me because for me, it's a reminder that you know that God is still working, that the Holy Spirit is still working, and He is calling people unto Himself from you know every tribe and every tongue and every background and every religion and. Uh, and and whatever you want to add to that, right? And and he is continuing to save people and add them. And especially when you're out in in rural parts of uh, of the state or in the country, and you and you see people getting baptized with with you know with names that are the names of the idols. You know, uh, um, Pisti read about the idols, right? I mean, they have the names of the idols, and here they are confessing the Lord Jesus Christ. And 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 not only. Is the is the ordinance important? But the way we do it is important as well, right? When we think about the six folks who were baptized, right, and and depicting so beautifully the fact that they have died in Christ and now they have risen up into new life, and uh, and this is the scriptural way of doing it. And I know folks have all kinds of different uh, you know reasonings and arguments, but when you look at the plain meaning of baptism in scripture. You know, it's very clear that it is to depict outwardly what has happened to us internally. And the scripture in, in the book of Romans is very clear that you have died in Christ and, uh, you know, we have been raised up with him into newness of life. And it was so beautiful to see uh, six of our believers, you know, you look at each of them with a very different testimony. Some who were born and brought up in, in Christian families and came to faith that way, others who came from completely different faiths, others who were in into all kinds of things and all, all sorts of uh, experiences and as far away from God as you could. And, and for me, it was just a beautiful picture of how, you know, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what your background is, it doesn't matter what uh, your situation in life is. It doesn't matter uh, where you've come from. It doesn't matter how deep you are into sin. Uh, you know, Jesus died for everyone and the Holy Spirit works to call all to repentance, which is what we're going to talk about today. So so we are here in Luke 13. So as, uh, as you would uh, remember, 
you know, we are in the section of, of, of the scriptures uh, of the book of Luke, rather that starts in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, and goes on through chapter 19, verse 44, which is the, the journey of Jesus to Jerusalem, right? And, and he is journeying, uh, he finished his ministry in Galilee, and, uh, you know, at the appointed time, at the right time, with that Passover feast in mind that was coming up, Jesus set out to go to Jerusalem, set out to go. Uh, it says he set his face towards Jerusalem. That's what we see in chapter 9, verse 51. And I just wanted to go through very quickly by way of setting the context, the key events that happened. And this wasn't uh, like just because he ended Galilee, it ended. It actually, this is the, the largest section of scripture of the book of Luke, if you divide it up into the different sections, which we've talked about before. Uh, it's actually 10 chapters and there's a lot going on in this journey. And if you can picture this, it's, it's, um, it's helpful for us to picture what's going on here. It's a 200 kilometer journey and Jesus has gathered his disciples and they're going, you know, this is a very common thing in India, right? We have all the politicians doing, what is that called, uh, uh, Ajit, that uh, uh, Rahul Gandhi is doing... Uh, uh, yatra, yeah, okay. So it's a, it's a yatra, it's a yatra to Jerusalem, okay. And Jesus has his, his disciples around him and they are going and, uh, you know, they will travel during the day. They will go from one town to another and it's not just, you know, let's get to Jerusalem, right? There's a lot of things happening. There's a lot of teaching going on. There's a lot of miracles going on. And Jesus is switching between talking to the multitudes that are gathering around him and then, you know, he will use the the interaction with the multitudes to then turn and give some specific teaching to his disciples. So as you go through this section of scripture, it's important that we, we, we pay attention to who is Jesus talking to. So sometimes he's talking to the multitude, sometimes he's talking to the disciples. And, and there is a distinction that we need to make there as we go through this. So what, what are some of the key, and by the way, we, because you know, we want to get through this book of Luke, uh, at some point you know, we've had to you know, we can't go through every one of these. And so we are skipping a lot of detail, but I would encourage each of you to, you know, it's not just about coming here on Sunday and listening to another message from Luke, but use this as a way for you to dig into the book of Luke. So between, uh, you know, if you remember, Gene was in, I think in Luke chapter 11 last week, and now we are skipping ahead to Luke 13. And between Luke 11 and Luke 13, there's a lot of things happening, right? So what are some of the things, uh, if you just go back to, chapter 9 and verse 51, we find immediately as he sets out on the journey, you know, he's coming from the north to the north, which is Galilee, down to the south of Israel, which is where Jerusalem is. And he goes through the region of Samaria. And uh, the Samarians reject Christ, right? And, and we, we read about that. And then right after that, in the latter part of chapter 9, he talks about the cost of discipleship. And then he moves on to send out the 70 uh, 70 of his uh, followers on a mission, right? And they go out uh, on this mission to the cities of Israel. And what is Jesus doing here? He's preparing these followers of his for life after Jesus, right? So he's preparing them to go out in the power of the Holy Spirit to minister, to experience. And he gives them all these instructions. He says, you'll go into the city and people may accept you. They may not accept you. Here's how you deal with that. So he's giving them a training while he's there. He's discipling them, so to speak, to, to go on uh, the mission that, that he has for them you know, after his ascension into heaven. Then we, that's in chapter 10. And then we come to the latter part of chapter 10. And he talks about the teaching on inheriting eternal life. Right? You have, you have this, this uh, person that comes 
to him and asks him, how can I attain eternal life? And Jesus talks about, uh, you know, the impossibility of attaining eternal life by one's own works, right? And he, he, uh, he talks about, you know, uh, following the law and then they get into that whole story of the Good Samaritan and then he goes to the house of Mary and Martha and we see there another lesson which is a continuation of that point about eternal life where, you know, Mary and Martha, you know, Martha sort of represents the person who's working, right? She's working to please uh, Jesus, doing all this thing, cooking and whatever she was doing. Uh, whereas Mary was sitting here devoted to the Lord, just, uh, you know, uh, showing her trust in the Lord. And, and Jesus is making that point there that what is needed here is not a lot of work, but rather for you to have that relationship, you know, to, to sit with the Lord. And then he goes on to teach the disciples about the Lord's prayer and about being persistent in prayer. And then last week we talked about uh, the controversy. So as as Jesus telling all of these things, he's addressing the different groups of people. And Gene went through those three groups of people. But there's the disciples, there's the multitude. Among the multitude, there are those who are skeptical, there are those who are critical, uh, and there's all these groups of people and uh, and they are many of them are responding negatively to the uh, to the teachings of the lord jesus and um, you know as we move forward we find later on in chapter 11 that he starts um, uh, casting or 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 uh, decreeing all these woes right woe to the pharisees woe to the lawyers woe to the hypocrites uh, so jesus not you know he's not um, uh, pulling any punches here. He's giving it to these people who are who have really turned the um, you know turned the, the children of Israel away from the change in their heart to a very legalistic kind of ritualistic form uh, of religion, and he's condemning them, right? And then uh, he then turns to the disciples in the in chapter twelve, and he starts talking about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and and what it means to genuinely seek the kingdom of God. And he, he instructs them that they should not focus on laying up treasures on earth, but rather, uh, you know, laying up treasures in heaven. And there's that parable of the rich fool uh, from which we can draw a lot of lessons and then about being faithful stewards, right? Um, so it, it's important as we go through these to note all of these things that are happening and, and realize what is that environment they're in, right? So now we come to chapter 13 and Jesus teaching uh, on uh, on on a couple of subjects, okay. One is repentance, and that, and the other is on bearing fruit, and that's what we are going to focus on uh, this morning. There's sort of two sections, but they are they are very much intertwined and related. And I believe there's some very good applications for us here this morning. So we find here that he starts off in this chapter with uh, with two um, you know two incidents that are related, and these are things that have happened. Uh, you know, happened uh, somewhere in that area. And the first one, you know, Jesus talks about is the Galileans, right? So in verse 1, he says they were present in that, uh, in that season, some, of, some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, we don't know much about this incident. There's no other record of it. Uh, but all we can tell is what's in this one verse, right? And all we know there is Pilate, was a very cruel guy, so this gives us a sense of who Pilate is, and it's a good context to have for later on, you know, when we see Pilate dealing with Jesus. Uh, and the Romans were very cruel, you know, they ruled 
with an iron fist. You know, they crushed uh, any hint of rebellion uh, in Israel. And, and, and now you can understand why, you know, the people of Israel were looking for this king, right? They thought Jesus was the one who was going to, uh, was going to take them away from the oppressive Roman rule. And it was a very, very oppressive rule. And so these uh, people, these Galileans, they did something. We don't know what, but Pilate didn't like it. And uh, uh, not only did he kill them, but he he then took their blood and he mixed them, mingled them with the sacrifices. So we were talking about sacrifice earlier, you know, all these animals being killed in the temple. So Pilate didn't, wasn't satisfied with just killing them. He wanted to offend the Jews and he mixed the blood of these people with the sacrifices. And, and these disciples, they come uh, to, not disciples, but these, uh, these, these people in the multitude, they come and they tell this to Jesus, right? And then there's another incident when we come down a, a little further, um, you know, in verse 4, uh, Jesus himself brings this up. He says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell, and kill them. So somewhere in the town of Siloam, there was a tower. The tower fell, and 18 people died because the tower fell on them. This is these are natural calamity. A natural calamity. We see them all over the place here: floods and and typhoons and things like that, and accidents. You know, we just had one uh, last week in uh, uh, in Gujarat where people, you know, the bridge collapsed. So something like that. You know, uh, you know, 100 people died here. 18 people died, and the question. And the first one is brought by the people. The second one is presented by Jesus. And Jesus asked them this question, right? And this question uh, that he asked them is that, is this, do you think that those who died, okay, in both these incidents, do you think that they were worse sinners than all others? Now, why would Jesus ask this question? Well, uh, we got to understand a little bit of the context of this question. And that is that the people, especially the Pharisees and the religious leaders, you know, in that day, they had this notion that, you know, when such calamities happened, uh, whether natural or otherwise, uh, when they occurred to certain people, it happened because of their personal sinful behavior, right? It's because they were somehow worse than others. They had done some sin and God was judging them for that sin. And, And along with this, you know, that's on one side, but along with this came also on the other side, this feeling of their own moral superiority, right? Or look at those 18 people, you know, the Tower of Siloam fell on them or, or, or you know, their blood was mixed, but they were killed by Pilate, but I'm still here, so I must be, therefore, compared to those people, more righteous, right? And um, and this was going on. In fact, it wasn't just, you know, the Pharisees, but even the disciples, right, uh, thought this way. So if you go to, uh, you know, John chapter 9, uh, in uh, in the Gospel of John, we see there, uh, a little hint of how the disciples thought because there we have this um, this uh, blind man, uh, John chapter 9. Yeah, as Jesus, verse 1, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth and his disciples asked him saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So we see uh, the same kind of attitude. So this was the the general teaching or the belief in that day, in that culture that you know, if something bad happens to you, then it must be because you have sinned or you have done some greater sin than everybody else. And we see Jesus' response there in verse 2, oh, sorry, verse 3. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the work of God should be revealed in him. Okay, So Jesus sort of puts that down immediately 
And, and Jesus here, he, he responds to this question, right? And he has a verbatim, the same verbatim response to these, to the question. And, and what does Jesus say? And he has a two-part response, right? The first part is, he says, I tell you no. And he has the exact same response to both of the, he asks the question twice. Both times he gives the same answer. He says, I tell you no. All right. So in other words, I tell you no, these people did not die because they were more sinful than everybody else. And then he also tells them why in the second part, you know, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So let's look at those things. So, you know, Jesus is saying very clearly that these people were not more sinful than others. And none of you, by extension, he's saying, don't think that any of you are more righteous than they are simply because you haven't perished, right? All of you need the same thing. You all need to repent uh, repent of your sins or you also will perish, right? So now while God may choose to punish people or nations for specific sins, you know, it is not our place to stand in judgment and make such conclusions. And think about our own attitude towards the sin in the world, right? God doesn't call us to judge sin, uh, you know, sinners rather, okay, uh, uh, you know, we have to stand against sin, but not to judge sinners and somehow make ourselves feel better, you know, compared to those people. And this is something sometimes we as Christians fall into the trap, you know, of saying things, especially if you go to places like the United States, you know, I remember there was this, um, uh, I think he's still alive, a televangelist named uh, uh, Pat Robertson. He even ran for president many, many years ago, uh, who has a, he has a show being a televangelist called the 700 Club, and he made the habit of coming on there and and condemning, you know, all kinds of people and saying if any typhoon came by or the terrorist attack uh, happened, you know, that it was because of the sins of this group or that group of people, right? And and, and again, that betrays a certain sense of self righteousness which the Pharisees here had, even the disciples had, and and Jesus saying, you know what, uh, that is not the right way to look at this, right? Uh, it is. I, I tell you no, okay, these people were not sinful than anybody else. Yes, they may have been sinful, but you are just as sinful as them, right? And and Jesus presents here, uh, 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 you know, two fundamental truths, right? Two fundamental truths, which is that, number one, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We see that in, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. And then if we go to Romans 3 verses 9, uh, I'll just read those verses, Romans 3 and verse 9 onwards. It says, what then? Are we better than they? This is the same point that Jesus is making, you know, the Apostle Paul is making here. He's talking here about the people that are doing evil and are living in evil and we think of them as evil. He says, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Uh, they have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. This, this is he's describing all people, right? Their throat is an open tomb. Uh, with their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and my, uh, misery are in their ways. And the way of, uh, of peace they have not known. There is 
no fear of God before their eyes. He's describing people in general, mankind in general, that there is no one righteous. By God's standard of righteousness, this is how, what we just read, this is how all people measure up, right? They, they fall short of the glory of God. And then there's another fundamental truth, point number two here, which is that all mankind is destined to perish unless they repent of their sinful condition. You know, in Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 9, let me, uh, let me just read that quickly. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. It's a, it's a verse that tells us, you know, how God views this, right? Second Peter 3 verse, uh, verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, His promise as some count slackness, but, but the Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and again this is a consistent message throughout scripture that god is a gracious god we've been remembering this morning the grace of god towards us okay and it says here that he desires that all men all should repent and that's what the lord jesus christ tells says here to these people is you know if you think that these people were more sinful than you you know let me tell you that's not the case you know all of you, you know, if you don't repent, you are going to perish, right? Whoever repents, you know, will not perish. But if you do not repent, you will likewise perish. Now, what, what is Jesus talking about here? Let's look at this notion of repentance, right? What is, what is repentance? So repentance, you know, the Greek word uh, is, a, is a verb. It's an action, all right? It's an active, uh, uh, you know, word there. And the word is metanoio. And uh, I have a, a definition there from a, a, a New Testament scholar, F.F. F. Bruce, which, who, who, who explains the idea of repentance in this way. He says, repentance involves a turning with contrition from sin to God, right? So it's a change of mind. It is a turning from one thing to another. The repentant sinner is in the proper condition to receive the forgiveness of God. So in order to be in the proper condition to receive the free gift of God's forgiveness for your sin, you know, repentance is a must. And we have talked about this in many other contexts, uh, especially in terms of the gospel message. You know, the entire gospel is a message of repentance, right? Um, you know, the, uh, you look at the, if you, if you just go and go to Bible Gateway, do a search on repentance, there are 54 occurrences of this word in the New Testament and it's all over the place. It's 25 in the Gospels, 10 in the book of Acts and 19 uh, times it's mentioned in the uh, in the epistles and revelation. We find uh, very clearly, right? Let's look at a few verses here. You know, Jesus came to call, um, uh, you know, came to call people uh, to repentance. Uh, Luke, ch- Luke chapter 5 verse 32. If we turn to Luke chapter 5 and verse 32, um, what, what do we see there? It says there that, um, you know, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, right? Jesus came to call us to repentance. You come to Luke chapter 15 and verse 7. Uh, again, we see uh, here that, uh, that it says, I say to you, Jesus says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no 
repentance. The gospel message is one of repentance. Let's go to Luke chapter 24. Um, and, and here this is in the, uh, this is a version, the Luke, Luke's version of the Great Commission uh, that we find in Matthew, Luke 24 and verse 46 and 47. Then Jesus said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance, repentance and remission of sin, sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. So what should be preached? Repentance and the remission of sins, right? When we come to the, the apostolic message, right, of the gospel, uh, starting in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is speaking on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and verse 38, uh, it says, Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So in, the, in, that, in that time, there was repentance, there was remission of sins, uh, you know, there was belief, there was remission of sins, and then the people got baptized. And, and these all things came together. Uh, in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, um, yeah, Acts chapter 3 and verse 19 says, Repent therefore and be converted and your, that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Again, pe- uh, Peter, uh, the, the disciples are preaching here, Peter and John in, uh, in Solomon's portico uh, in, in the temple. If you go to Acts chapter 17 and verse 30, Acts 17 and verse 30. Yeah, it says, Truly these times of ignorance, God, this Paul uh, preaching here, these times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Okay, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. So God is going to bring judgment. But today, okay, he is commanding everyone everywhere to repent of their sins. And then... um, Let's look at one more verse, Acts chapter 20, uh, yeah, Acts 20 and verse 21. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, Acts, uh, Acts 20 and verse 21. Yeah, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So repentance and faith, this is the essence of the gospel message. Now, when we talk about repentance in scripture, we find that repentance is needed not only to repent of our sins and turn to God for justification, right? But repentance is also something we need daily as believers in Christ. We need to repent. You know, in 1 John 1, 9 says that if you are, uh, you know, let me just read that 1 John 1, 9. Although we are all familiar with this passage, it's always Helpful to go back directly to the scripture. So 1 John 1 verse verse 9 and 10, it says, If we say, uh, yeah, let's read from verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And this is being written to believers. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we confess our sins, right? So this process of confession and repentance needs to be uh, a daily part of your life and my life as believers. In, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, you know, Jesus is speaking there uh, to the, uh, the, the seven churches and there in particular to the church in Ephesus and he, he condemns them, he, he criticizes them for, for uh, you know, for uh, 
losing their first love. And he says, repent, right? Repent and do the first works or return to, the, to their first works. So, so this notion of repentance is something, you know, we, we sometimes think repentance is just about getting saved, right? And that's the process of justification. Yes, it is an important part of that. It is an integral part of that. One has to have this experience of turning, right? With contrition, with sorrow, at sin, turning to God and coming to Him, seeking His forgiveness, and then you receive the grace to accept that forgiveness of God. But then beyond that, as believers, you know, we are still beset by sin, right? We are on a journey of sanctification uh, where we are being made more and more like Christ and it's important then that we continue to repent. So what, what, is, what does this repentance look like, right? Um, let's turn to Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse uh, 8 onwards. Second Corinthians 7, where Paul is talking to the, the, the Corinthian believers and he explains to them that, um, you know, and, and uh, Paul has written a letter, probably he's referring to the first letter. There was some sin in the, in the Corinthian church. It was probably the same sin that's referred to in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, which was a, a sexual sin. And, and look at what Paul says here, right? In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 8, he says, For even I made you sorry, with my letter, I do not, even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did uh, regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now look at verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted but the sorrow of the world produces death so he says here repentance involves sorrow okay it involves being sorry for your sin but it's not worldly sorrow it's godly sorrow right and he says here godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted but the sorrow of the world produces death now you can have two kinds of sorrow right and and uh, i know i've had experiences dealing with with believers or, or people who claim to be believers who got into the the worst kind of sins and and i've had the opportunity to see both true godly sorrow as well as worldly sorrow you know worldly sorrow is where you're sorry that you got caught right you're not sorry about the sin that you did and you try to rationalize it godly sorrow is when you know you truly uh, you know, are hurt by what you have done and you have that realization that what I have done has offended, uh, you know, my, my God or has offended the Lord Jesus and therefore I have true sorrow that produces fruit, right? And we'll come to that in a minute. So uh, then he goes on to say, you know, what happened, right? So in verse 13, for observe this very thing, okay, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, okay? And then he goes on to give a list of things that, that, that this godly sorrow produced in the life of these Corinthian believers. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So it produced certain outcomes in them that godly sorrow did. Right? It produced diligence or earnestness. Uh, it produced clearing of yourself or eagerness to clear yourself. 
It produced indignation at sin. It produced fear, fear of God. It produced a vehement desire in them to please God. It produced zeal towards God and it produced vindication or clear, you know, they were cleared of blame or suspicion because of the response they had from the true repentance. And that is what true repentance looks, looks like. And what is, what is Jesus calling us to do here back in Luke? Jesus is saying that if you have never come to Christ for salvation, right? If you, have, if you do not know Christ as your Savior, then He is calling you today. Uh, you know, He is calling you now to repent and turn to Him. He is calling you to repent and accept His free gift of salvation based on His death for your sins by which He paid the penalty in full. You know, it doesn't matter what your background is, you know, you don't, uh, you know, as, as we were reminded yesterday by Charlie, you know, our faith is not genetic. You know, you do not get born into salvation. You do not get born uh, into the house of God. It is something where you have to come. You are a sinner. Each of us is a sinner, just like every other, other human being. And we have to repent of our sins. We have to come to that point of sorrow for our sin and a change of mind about our sin. Turn to God and accept his free gift of salvation. I just want to encourage anybody here today who is listening to me, if you have not had this experience, if you have not reached the point of being convicted of your sin and turning to God with true godly sorrow and repentance and asking Him for His forgiveness, trusting in what Christ has done for you on the cross of Calvary, then I encourage you to do it today. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time. And then if you have trusted in Christ, as many of you have, you know, He's still calling you and me to repent so that we can progress on our journey of sanctification. You know, what are the sins in your life of which you need to repent? They might be sins of omission or sins of commission. All kinds of sins that we have in our life. Maybe, maybe they are sins that are keeping us away from a, from a stronger, a closer walk with the Lord, a more intimate relationship with Him. You know, Jesus saying, repent, repent and return to me. Repent or you will all likewise perish is what he told these people here. So the first point here, the first lesson is on repentance. And then Jesus goes on to talk about the second lesson, which is, you know, which is about, uh, uh, about fruit bearing, right? So he comes to, uh, he, he gives us parable. He spoke a parable. I'm back in Luke 13 now in verse 6. He spoke a parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find and I find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up this ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that you can cut it down. So here we find the concept of fruit bearing, right? Repentance comes with fruit, right? Repent, true repentance leads to fruit bearing as we saw in Second Corinthians. So in this parable, and you know, there are, there are a lot of interpretations about this parable that involve the fig tree representing Israel and all that. I'm not going to go there. I'd rather apply it to ourselves here. And here we find the owner who, who, uh, who clearly represents God, right? Uh, and so God has this fig tree planted, but it doesn't bear fruit for three years. And then he wants to, you know, he goes to the keeper who I believe represents the Lord Jesus Christ here and says, cut down because it is wasting the land. It's taking up 
resources and not producing any, fu- any fruit, we have given it three years. And then we find here the keeper who again represents Christ. He says, give it one more year, right? And, uh, and then let me do some things. Let me help it, right? Let me dig around it and let me fertilize it. And let's see if after one year of doing all of these things, it still produces fruits. Now, there are a lot of lessons that, uh, you know, that, that, that we can learn from this, um, from this parable, right? First of all, uh, it is that true repentance produces fruit, right? And you can read Luke 3.8 and Acts 26.20. You know, uh, every time there is true repentance in our life, the result has to be fruit. You will, we will know them, right? Jesus clearly states that we are to know genuineness by observing the fruit. I'm not going to go to this verse, but you go and read Matthew 7.16-20, to 20, which is talking about false prophets. But, but, you know, he says that you shall know false prophets and true by their fruit, by what their life produces and you know uh, there is a there is this tendency for us to think that you know if we have no fruit in our life you know that that's okay because we've been saved and you know people misuse that doctrine of the security of salvation let me just tell you that if you are truly saved if you truly have the holy spirit within you you will produce fruit now maybe the amount of fruit and the fruitfulness uh, you know will vary from person to person as we mature in christ but, you know, when we come to John chapter 15, you know, Jesus talks about this very, very clearly, right? And he says, uh, he talks about abiding in the vine. Um, you know, when we read, uh, he says uh, in uh, John 15 and verse 5, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. You know, and then in verse 8 of John 15, he says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples, right? So God desires us to be fruit-bearing Christians. He is glorified when we bear fruit in our lives. Now, how can we be fruit-producing believers? You know, and again, uh, coming back here to John, uh, John 15, it says in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine Neither can you unless you abide in me. Okay, this concept of abiding in Christ, right? Now, Scripture uses the words, the, these, the term abiding in Christ a little differently than being in Christ. Okay, so if you go to Second Corinthians 5.17, it says, If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creature, right? In Ephesians 2.10, it says again that you are in Christ, okay? So salvation is described as being in Christ. But then there's this thing called abiding in Christ, which, you know, when you look at the context in which it's used, it refers to a daily, active, growing faith and intimacy of relationship with the Lord. You know, when you are grafted into that branch, which is Christ, you know, you still need to draw the nutrition, you know, from the root, right? From from the root, which is Christ. Now, how do we Abide in Christ. Well, let's come to John 15 again, verse 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Okay, how, how, how do we abide in Christ? By maintaining a complete dependency on Christ. Without him, we can do nothing. Are we relying on him to live our lives or are we relying on ourselves? Um, and then in um, verse 10 of John 15 again, It says, uh, if you keep my commandments, 
you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. How do you abide in Christ? By being obedient, by keeping his, his commands. Let's go to 1 John. And 1 John makes this very clear. First uh, John chapter 3 and verse uh, 24. Yeah, 1 John 3 and verse 24. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. That is Christ in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Okay, he who keeps his commandments abides in him. 1 John chapter 2 verse 24 and 25. Same thought. Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, that is the teaching that has been given to you, if that abides in you, um, you know, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father, right? And so, you know, how do we abide in Christ? It's, it's really comes down to just obedience to the Word. It comes down to knowing the Word. You know, it comes down to obeying the Word so that you, uh, you know, have a more intimate relationship with the Lord. And let me ask you this question, you know, are you a fruit bearing Christian. Are you a fruit bearing Christian? You know, Jesus says here that, you know, that that victory that is, um, you know, not bearing fruit, it's simply taking up ground. You know, it's useless. He says, cut it off. Now, I don't want to get into controversial topics about, you know, cutting it off, meaning that you're going to lose your salvation. That's not the point there. Okay, that's not the point that's in view there or in John 15. We don't have time to get into that. But simply, you know, look at what the message that the Lord is sending there. He says, repent, for that is what brings you salvation. Repent of your sins, you know, once you are saved, because that is what brings you, uh, you know, closer to God. But we need to be fruit-bearing. And I want us to just think about this, you know, uh, are you committed to growing spiritually? You know, you know last, uh, if I can just turn a little bit of attention to, to, to some of what's been going on, you know, we, we introduced this... Uh, uh, this membership thing, right? And and uh, you know, I know some of you have been parsing through every word and jot and tittle of that document and coming up with all kinds of things. You know, uh, let's take this in the right spirit. Okay, what is the heart of the elders in this matter? It is that you should be fruit-bearing Christians. Okay, it is not something to to use to you know beat you over the head and say, oh, you missed this one, therefore you are no longer a member of the church. That's not the idea here. It is for us to know what does a fruit-bearing Christian look like. You know, and if, if you are sitting there worried about every one of those, the, there's a bigger problem. Okay, it is that you don't have that commitment. You know, it is that you are thinking about this legalistically. Right, like this is some legal document that somebody is going to use in a court of law against you. That's, that was never the idea. You know, our desire is that all of us should be fruit-bearing Christians. And, and these are the kind of fruits that one sees in the life of one who is fruit-bearing, who is, has a growing relationship with the Lord. If there's a problem that you're not meeting some of those things, the right response is not to go and question it. The right response is to say, what do I need to change? What do I need to change in my life to become a fruit-bearing Christian? So that I'm able to make commitments to the church. So that I'm able to serve the people of God. So that I'm able to commit to studying the word and having it become real in my life. Because Jesus says here, you know, if you are not bearing fruit, you know, and God is patient. You know, look at that in that parable. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is given charge of that garden. He says, let me, let me give it some more time. 
Let me go and dig around it. Let me fertilize it a little bit. And that's what the Lord is trying to do in your life. And if you are resisting that and continue to be useless and take up space, that is not what God desires from you and me. He wants you and I to be fruit-bearing Christians. Have you genuinely repented of your sins and turned to Christ for salvation? If anybody sitting here today listening to me, you know, you might have grown up in the church, you might have heard the gospel all your life, but you do not have the Holy Spirit in you, you've not come to that point of, of genuinely repenting and turning to Christ, I'm reminding you again that today is the day and all of us who are believers, are you constantly repenting and are you, uh, are you doing Uh, Are you obeying the word of God? Are you uh, delving into the word of God? Are you uh, fellowshipping with your fellow believers? Are you uh, making the efforts that's required of you? You know, the Lord has given you, it says he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Are you using those resources to, uh, to, to build that intimate relationship with the Lord so that you can produce fruit in your life? And you know, Jesus is here confronting, he's speaking to these people and he's confronting them about repentance and he's saying, you know, your repentance is only meaningful if it produces fruit. And I believe that's the message he's telling to each of us today as believers, right? Uh, is that, you know, uh, if we truly repent of what is wrong in our lives, you know, we need to have a change of heart. We need to change the way we're living. We need to return to obeying the word of God. We need to return to studying the word of God. We need to return to a devotional relationship with him. And we need to see that fruit in our lives. And so I just trust that the Lord will encourage each of us today to examine our own lives and to see what it is that each of us needs to, right? It's not about looking at somebody else, but I need to look at myself, right? There are areas in my life that need repentance that I need to repent. There are areas in my life where I can be producing much more fruit uh, than what I already am. And each of us has those in our lives. And I encourage each of us to think through that and to examine our own life in the light of this is the message of the Lord, right? This is the message of the Lord. He wants us to repent and he wants us to bear fruit. And may each of us be repentant, fruit-bearing Christians. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your uh, merciful Uh, your mercy and your grace, Lord, that you do not give up on us, Father, that you are constantly looking, Lord, for us to turn around, to repent of the things that are wrong in a life, of setting right those things, even as you said to the Ephesians church, Lord, repent and return to the first works and set right what has gone wrong. Lord, we just pray, I just pray, Lord, that each of us would examine our own lives. We know, Lord, that there is so much more that we could be doing, that there's so much more fruit that we could be producing, Lord, fruit that impacts the life of people, fruit that helps other people grow, fruit that serves the church, fruit that that takes the gospel out into the, the community and the people around us, Lord. And we just pray, Lord, that each of us may examine ourselves today in the light of your word and that we might turn to you, Lord. We might turn to obedience. We might turn to a greater desire, Lord, to understand uh, what you desire of us and to serve you, Lord to abide in you, to abide in that vine and draw the strength that comes from abiding in Christ so that it may then produce much fruit uh, manifold in our lives, Father. We thank you again for this time and we give you all the glory in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.